Good to see you guys. All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is where we will be this morning. It's amazing sometimes how, as we are walking through books of the Bible, uh, a passage that we'll be on and just randomly be landing on for a week will fit so perfectly with kind of the situation uh, around us. And so Acts 17, the chapter, the, the passage we'll be looking at this morning, uh, will fit that pretty perfectly. Just to let you guys know, uh, let you in on a little bit of what's happening in my life, last night, in the middle of the night, my grandfather passed away. Uh, and so we had known that he was going to pass away soon. And so he went, I think, around 3 o'clock last night. And so uh, we'd appreciate your prayers. I'll be heading over to my grandmother's today. Um, so my mind might be a little bit scattered, um, but I know that you'll excuse me for that. Um, now, we do have a lot to do this morning, a lot of heavy lifting to do this morning, so I hope you brought your thinking caps, okay? You brought your scriptural imaginations, we're going to dig in this morning, um, because we're in a very important place uh, in just history right now, and in, in seasons right now, with, with different events happening around us. Hopefully you know, because of paying attention to things happening around you, and because of uh, just having your priorities straight, and, and knowing kind of the, the culture and, and the dates and, and what's happening around us, hopefully you know that Tuesday is a very important day. Okay, on Tuesday you have a choice, right? And your choice will have very important consequences on Tuesday, okay? In fact, the choice that you make on Tuesday could influence, in a big way, our church, and could influence, in a big way, our ability to worship faithfully, and our ability to be who Jesus has called us to be as his church. Uh, the, the choice we make on Tuesday could influence how we interact with and, and how we um, engage with our nation. It could have implications for what happens with the rest of the world, with what happens and and how kind of salvation history kind of plays out. And, and what I want to do is spend the entire morning, this morning, pleading with you to make the right choice on Tuesday. Hopefully all of you by now have realized what I'm talking about. Tuesday night, we're having a communion service here at the church, okay? And the choice that you need to make is to come worship with us on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. Is there something else happening? Did I, is that, I don't know, maybe, okay? But, but 8 o'clock on Tuesday night, we're having a communion service. I want to invite you to come and worship with us. It'll be real short, so your kids are welcome. We're going to have your kiddos in here with us. We'll send you out of here in 30 minutes, no later than 45 minutes. I'm not going to be preaching. We're going to read some scripture. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion, okay? I uh, want to explain this morning why we're doing that and, and what we'll be doing there. And then also, that'll tie into our text and I think tie into um, what the Spirit wants to speak to us today through the scriptures. Um, there's a group of churches, I think last time I saw about 800 churches or so throughout the nation in all 50 states. Uh, who are meeting on Tuesday night to have election. It's called Election Day Communion. It's a movement that started uh, in 2008 and has grown a little bit bigger um, this uh, time around in this election cycle. Obviously, on Tuesday, we'll be electing a president, okay? And so uh, either Obama will have four more years or we'll have Mitt Romney in there uh, for his first term, his first four years. Um, and we want to, as a church, think through carefully how you and I act and engage in a political world during politically important events, okay? And communion is a political event. It's a political action, perhaps the most important political action that a Christian can take. So you can think about it like this. When you take communion, when you come and you, you take some of the bread and dip it in the wine, you are pledging your allegiance to Christ, to Jesus as your Lord, as your King, as your Savior. You are declaring your independence from any other authority that would would try to claim and clamor for your loyalty and your trust and your hope 
and your obedience. Communion is this political act where we come together as the body of Christ and say, we will be defined by you. And so on, on Tuesday night, both here and across the nation, um, people are welcome at the altar. Um, those who voted for Barack Obama okay, are welcome at the table to worship Christ, to receive him. And those who vote for Mitt Romney on Tuesday are welcome at the table to worship with us and to receive Christ. And those who vote for one of the other third-party candidates or riding candidate are welcome at the table to worship with us and to receive Christ. And those who don't vote as kind of like a protest to the system, which I do think is a legitimate Christian option, is a legitimate expression of, of Christian moral and theological obligation. But those who don't vote are welcome at the table to worship and to receive Christ with us. And on Tuesday night, states, red states and blue states and undecided states... We'll all be holding these communion nights, okay, as the body of Christ gathers together and makes a political statement, which is we're more defined by Christ than we are by whatever happens in the American political arena on Tuesday night. If you know me, uh, if you know me really well, you'll know that I have this morbid fascination with politics, okay? Uh, It is better than the circus (laughs) for me, okay, just to kind of watch everything that's happening out there. Um, I don't know much about politics, and so... I don't know enough about world history to understand all the implications of foreign policy. I don't know enough about economics to understand all the implications of things that happen there. I don't know enough about poverty and how those systems of injustice work to really understand the decisions that are made to influence that. Uh, I mean, I probably couldn't explain the stock market to a three-year-old, okay? Um, But I do know a good deal about the scriptures and a good deal about theology and a good deal about church history and how Christians have thought about politics and engaged with the state. And so this has been the first year that I've really felt like, or first election cycle, that I've really felt like I have enough knowledge under my feet to be able to think Christianly about politics and about elections. And it's also the first kind of election cycle that I've really paid attention and really been invested in it and really seen what's happening. And again, on one hand, it's been just really amusing to me. There was one Christian theologian who said the stance of Christians toward the American elections should be one of entertainment, should be one of being amused, like the Roman circus. And on the other hand, though, it's been this horrifying, horrific kind of experience, watching Christians try to engage politically in ways that I think are embarrassing. I think they're embarrassing to the church. I think they're embarrassing to Christ. I think they're embarrassing to the scriptures. And, and it's, it's been one of those things that I've watched and I've seen how people use language and seen how people associate different ideas or issues or candidates with Jesus or with Christianity and seen how it all kind of works. So I've just sat back over and over and over again and gone, what a mess we've been in and what a mess we are in. And it just so happens our text this morning is going to be kind of the political center of the book of Acts. What I think might be the entire center of the book of Acts here as a, a theme that's run um, implicitly throughout the book of Acts between Caesar and Christ bubbles to the surface. And we get to see the early church, how they deal with this politics, how they deal with the fact that there are other kings, yet we worship the king named Jesus. So here's what I want to ask you this morning. Here's going to be my one plea with you this morning, okay? I want you as the church to be Christian before you're American. And I think if if we're going to take a poll, first service and then this service, a poll of like, are you Christian before you're American? I think most of us would say on board, like, okay, yeah, I'm on board. I'm, I'm in it. Okay, Christian, God first, nation second, family third, or God, family, nation. I don't know how you do it right. Probably put family up there. Your wife's going to be like, what are you doing? Nation hasn't come before us. Um, but, but we'd say something similar, right? Like, well, of course, God comes first, and then our nation and our family and our friends and all these other secondary commitments, things like that. 
But I don't think it's as simple as that. And I think as a whole, if you really look at it and really think about it, the church is in the, the kind of messy place she's in because we're not Christians before we're Americans. On a whole, almost everything I've seen come out of Christians' mouth during this election cycle has proven that we're Americans first, more specifically Democrat Americans or Republican Americans, and then we're Christians second. And I think there's a way out biblically. I think if we think through things scripturally, there's a way out of this. There's a way into clarity. There's a way into faithfulness. And I want to find it this morning. But I don't want us to assume that we, well, of course we're on board. We're Christians before we're Americans. Because it's so easy to get deceived and to get trapped and to get swept under the flood of the craziness that happens in the American political cycle. And so I'm going to do my best to be very tender this morning and to not offend or make people upset. Uh, I actually got a few weeks ago asked by a magazine to be interviewed for on to get one statements from a couple pastors on politics and i had put some posts on twitter that had gotten some attention and uh i declined i was like no i'm not interested i don't want to be used like for a soundbite and someone asked me like why would you decline right you could have like you know made the paper or something like that i was like here's why i declined you get crucified if you talk about politics mm-hmm. right you can talk about god all you want you get crucified if you talk about politics by either side doesn't matter you're going to make somebody upset. I was like, if we've learned anything from history, we've learned that, and I'm not ready to go into that cage yet. (laughs) But we're going there this morning, okay? So my goal is if I make you upset, I'm going to make both sides upset, okay? Not just one side or one one group here. I think that's probably Jesus' way of doing things. Everyone will be a little bit offended, hopefully, um, by the time we're done this morning. Um, again, I think we've, we've done a bad job of this. I mean, we just, I think the church in America needs to repent. I think we need to repent. I think, and I don't think I'm using the words hyperbole, uh, uh, I mean, don't think it's hyperbole when I say this. Um, I think the church in America needs an exorcism, needs demons cast out of the institutional church and how we have participated with American politics. Um, and so, again, it's just easy to get twisted, right? And here's how I can tell you that we've messed things up in the church. Because in most of the circles I run in, it's a much worse thing to be labeled a, a person of a, the other political party than to be labeled a heretic. You will upset people. They will get actually angry at you and think less of you if they find out that you have a different political party than if they found out you thought something wrong about Christ or worshiped a different God. Why? It means more to them. They're American. They're flavor of American before they're Christian. Um, there was a, and so, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use some examples this morning. I'm not going to try to pick on anybody or on any side or anything like that, but there's a, a, a Christian organization run by Billy Graham. Um, he's about to die. He's really old, so it's really run for my son um, uh, right now. The Billy Graham Association. Again, I'm a big fan of Billy Graham and his son, so I'm not picking on them. I'm just using them as an example I think that we're all guilty of. Um, on his website, okay, he has listed or had listed Mormonism as a cult, all right? So as not a legitimate expression of Christian theology, what Mormons believe. As your pastor, I would say I would agree with that, okay? Mormonism is not a legitimate expression of the faith put forth by the scriptures. The Orthodox Christians in the ancient church would say, if you believe such wrong things about God, it'd be like putting your key in the wrong hole, mm-hmm. right? That's why it's important. You're, you're worshiping a different God. You're not going to get the result that you're hoping for, that you want, a week after Mitt Romney comes and visits Billy Graham and his son, their website is scrubbed of any reference to Mormonism as a cult, right? 
Again, I'm not picking on, on Billy Graham here. Billy Graham, uh, and then very quickly, there's an ad release paid for by Billy Graham's association saying you need to vote pro-life and uh, pro-traditional marriage. Uh, and so he's still really proud that he's never endorsed a candidate in his life. That's like his thing, right? But it's pretty clear to me what's happened, right? And, and this is interesting with the religious right. We think Jesus, um, or at least the religious right, has thought that Jesus was on their side, but, but we're willing to, to close our eyes in that direction, right, to stick with our party, to stick with our partisan party, even to the extent that, yeah, you're doing these weird things with your websites, and people are watching. And they're going, is that easy for you to change your public stance on, on Mormonism? or to at least push it to the side so that you can continue endorsing the people who you want to endorse. We're just in a mess in America, okay? Again, I think Acts 17 provides us the way out of this. I want us to be more Christian than we are American. I want us to be defined by Jesus, by our allegiance to him, than by our nationality. I want us to be more defined by our team of faith, family, our brothers and sisters of Christ, than we are by our team of partisan politics, I want that to be what unifies us. And I think, again, there's a way we can get there if we think biblically. I think there's a way that we can actually say, you're right, I'm more unified to the church than I am to a political party. So let's look at it. Acts 17. Again, I think this might be the heart of, of Acts. Uh, I think you've got a big turning point here in the book of Acts. We'll pick it up in chapter 1. We've just left Philippi, where we saw those three people converted last week. Um, the uh, fashionista, Lydia, the rich woman... Uh, the slave girl and then the jailer. And now we are traveling in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they, had, uh, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, the emperor, the king of kings, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Again, I think this has been a theme implicit throughout the entire narrative of Acts. We've teased it out here and there as we've preached through the book of Acts. And here it comes bubbling to the surface. The people in Thessalonica bring them forward and say, we've got a king, they've got another one. And our king's in charge. And it's going to have to be something we have to think about. Verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Verse 9. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, who were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's interesting, the early Christians are never ignored wherever they go. You're either on board and having your life transformed or you're hated and persecuted. 
what they'll follow you from city to city to try to disrupt what you're doing, right? But, but you can't ignore what's happening with this Christian movement. Then the brothers, verse 14, immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Okay, um, as we get started here, um, the, really the only thing we'll say about this, this time in Berea is notice the Bereans, their attitude to the scriptures has made them kind of famous throughout church history. Um, and they stand as kind of this model for how you and I should receive instruction and how you and I should really think through certain things, which is with a scriptural imagination. The Bereans were committed to the scriptures. They had invested authority in the scriptures. And so when Paul came and his Christian companions came, they were preaching the gospel, the Bereans sat down day after day and looked it up and underlined and read and talked and worked through it. And I think one of the things that you and I are lacking, one of the things that would help us see through murky issues like politics is if we really put forth time, invested time into having scriptural imaginations and knowing what the scripture said, knowing why they said it, knowing what was there, knowing how it all works together. I've got a friend, Michael, who often says this. He says, the only thing I care less about than your feelings toward Jesus are your opinions of Jesus. Because uh, he, he says, what, I'm cared about, what I care about is, is the scriptures. I care about what's there. I care about what Christian leaders have said. Right? Your feelings will lead you astray. Your opinions will lead you astray. But if you want to talk about something, let's talk about it through the scriptures. And that's one of our big challenges here at the church. We want to think things through from a biblical standpoint, including what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's put it on our thinking caps and go back to Thessalonica. All right? So Paul and his friends are traveling. They get to Thessalonica. In verse 3, they go where they go when they normally get to a city for the first time. They go to the synagogue. To Jews who are already worshiping, already have a framework for what they're about to say. And they start to reason with him. If you look in, in chapter 17, verse 3, they're explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, this word, the Christ, all right, this is not Jesus' last name, okay? It's not Jesus Christ. <coughs> it's Mike Skinner. Christ is a title. That's why you see the there sometimes in front of it. It's a very technical Jewish title. It means Messiah, which means the King of the Jews, it's a royal term. You see, the Jewish people had been living under foreign oppression, under other kings and other armies and other nations for most of their history. And they had this hope, based on some promises that God gave them, that a king would come, the Messiah or the Christ, and he would free them. He would bring salvation. He would bring God's kingdom. He would make the world run as God wanted it to run. And there are lots of scriptures about this. And so Paul's going to try to prove to the, uh, the people in Thessalonica here that, that this is Jesus. So the first thing, there's a syllogism here. The first part is, it was necessary for the king to suffer, to die, to rise again. The Jewish people, a lot of them thought the king would come like most other kings come, right? And there would be military victory. He would overthrow and defeat the enemies. Um, no one was expecting a king to come and to die. But Paul and the other Christians said, if you looked back in the scriptures, that thread was there all along, even if we missed it. So Paul probably would have pointed to Psalm 16, which talks about the king not being abandoned in the grave, but being risen again from dead, from the dead. Um, he would have pointed to probably Isaiah 53 that talks about the king being wounded for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. He would have pointed to probably Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, all these classic texts that the other Christians pointed to and said, if you look, if you look carefully, it was there all along. The king was going to come, but he was going to come as a suffering servant. He would come, he would die and rise again. 
And so Paul moves from that fact after convincing them. He says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the second thing it's implied here is that's what happened to Jesus. Right? Jesus of Nazareth who came in Galilee preaching about the kingdom of God. He suffered, died, and rose from the dead. The result, the conclusion, he was the Christ. He was the king. And you should commit your lives to him. You should follow him. You should worship him. You should put your obedience in him. And so apparently he convinces a lot of them in verse 4. A lot of them are persuaded. They join the believers, as did a whole lot of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But verse 5, the Jews were jealous. Or even a word we might put here is zealous. There's this politicalness to the word. And they, they took some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. So you've got this riot happening. Now, all throughout the second half of Acts, from chapter 15 on, you're going to see riot after riot after riot after riot. Again, it's interesting. Um, one of my favorite authors says, when I go places, uh, they serve me tea. When Paul goes places, they beat him up and throw him in jail, right? Um, if we were to start a church in another city, right, it'd probably be pretty much a non-issue. Um, if Paul goes and starts a church, it, the whole city erupts in riots, right? You're either on board or you're against it. They start this riot, the season uproar, and they attack the house of Jason, who apparently had been housing some of the Christian leaders. Poor Jason here, he gets involved in a situation um, and kind of gets the, 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 the bad end of the stick here. In verse 6, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, so they end up just taking Jason. And they drag him before the authorities, and then they make a claim. They make a charge, and this is where we got a sinner in this morning. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, this charge right here in verse 6 and 7 is probably worth marking for you. These men, they say, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Apparently they had heard about what had been happening in other cities. And Jason here, he's received them. He's welcomed them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now the question you've got to answer when you read this charge is, is this charge true or false? Is what the Thessalonians say about the Christians correct, or is it a trumped-up charge? And how you answer that will determine how you think about politics, how you think about political engagement, how you think about how Jesus and his kingdom actually engage with the real world. So a lot of people have read the book of Luke and seen that Luke, every time the Christians are brought before city magistrates, are brought before authorities, receive ultimately the sentence of innocent. It seems like Luke is trying to prove that the Christians are never guilty of the charges that are brought on them. And that, and that almost the, the book of Acts is an apologetic letter. It's an apology to Theophilus, this high Roman governor, that, hey, if you really knew about our community, you wouldn't be as scared of it as some people are talking about it, right? There are all these rumors about Christians that were kind of far-fetched. In fact, I mean, they had these love feasts. They would come have communion by themselves, and they would keep other people out. If, if you weren't invited, they'd hear this loud music and dancing, and there'd be lots of wine and eating and drinking involved. And there are rumors that the Christians would go in and sacrifice babies during these love feasts, right? This is kind of the, the swirling rumors that people had about what was happening in this Christian community because they were a closed kind of community. And so a lot of people have seen Luke writing here saying, hey, look at history. Look at all the decisions that are made in these different towns. Every time we're brought up on these charges, we've been innocent. We've been let go. We've been declared right, righteous. And so some people said, this is another example. This is a misunderstanding. There is not this political tension between Jesus and between Caesar. And other people, though, have started to say, no, 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 no. There was this political tension between Jesus and Caesar, and you had to choose Caesar or Jesus. And just like back then, so today we need to bring Jesus back into the political realm. 
We need to vote like Jesus. We need to enact legislation like Jesus. We need to um, take over our nation for Jesus instead of Caesar, instead of another king. You have these two kind of opposite decisions that you can make with this text. Here's the answer I'll suggest this morning. Is this charge true or false? Yes. As often it is in the real world, as big boys and girls, the answer is not simple or black and white. It's complex. And in that complexity, you find beauty and truth and strength and power. So, um, again, let's, let's walk through these two options, okay, and try to see here what I mean by, by it's kind of true and kind of false. Um, on the one side, one option that people have done is to say Jesus is kingdom. The fact that he's king, what he's doing with salvation, with his ministry, with his life and death and resurrection is solely spiritual. It has to do with your soul. It has to do with what's going to happen to you on an individual level after you die. And we've made religion around a few hundred years, around the Enlightenment, we've made that kind of religion's end game, okay? Religion was all about making sure after you die, you can go to the right place. Your soul's going to be sucked off. You need to go to heaven for all of eternity or go to hell for all of eternity. And you need to make sure you were going to the right place. And the reason we did this, the reason we've started to think of religion in this way is because for a long time as humans, we couldn't stop fighting about God. We kept killing each other about God. We couldn't sit down and grow a big nation because we all had different views about God. And what we decided with the Enlightenment was what if we exiled God to spiritual things? What if we made God about our souls and about our afterlife? Would that free us up to run things the way we want to run them? To do politics, to do the real work of governing humanity? We created this split-level dimension where God is far off and we are kind of on our own down here running things. And it, in a sense, worked. This is what we call deism, this idea that God's far off. It allowed us to build these big nation-states. It's allowed America to have a dollar bill that says, in God we trust. But Christians worship a different God than Muslims. And Muslims worship a different God than Jewish people. And Jewish people worship a different God than Christians. But we all agree on this dollar bill. Why? Because the word God really doesn't mean much other than this kind of vague deity that we can all agree upon without talking too much about it. It's allowed us to grow these big nation states to do what we wanted to do with it. Um, now, the problem with um, thinking about religion in these solely spiritual terms and thinking that, that the churches are wrong. Jesus has nothing to do with Caesar. He has nothing to do with government. He has nothing to do with human political action. The problem with this is, is, one, it can't work. It doesn't work. God always finds a way to come back in, often in ways you don't expect, often in ways that have unintended consequence. The other problem with this is, as a lot of people would point out today, the Bible itself. Okay, um, The Bible, the God of the Bible, is not this solely spiritual, only concerned with your afterlife type God. It's not there. It's not to be found in the scriptures. God, the God of the scriptures, is concerned with history. It's concerned with the here and now. It's concerned with all the things that you and I would think of when it comes to politics, economy, health care, poverty. He's a God who has come to people in history and said, I'm fixing this. And y'all will get along and y'all will act and function just the way I want you to act and function in peace and joy and happiness. That's why if you read through the entire Old Testament, you'll almost find nothing that talks about what happens to you after you die. And when you walk through the Old Testament, they go, well, this is crazy. It would have been so simple for God to make it real clear to the Israelites, right? My purpose in dealing with you is to make sure that you go to the right place after you die. But he never once even mentions it. And you're like, God, I can do this better than you. It's real simple, right? 
make a quick little tract, give it to Israel, and they'll be able to make the right decision. But all of God's promises seem to be very this worldly. I'm going to come in, I'm going to fix what's gone wrong here. I'm going to make things right. And then you get to the prophets in the Old Testament. And when the prophets speak for Yahweh, when they speak for the God of the Scriptures, they come and they speak about economy. And they come and they say, you've got rich, rich, rich people and poor, 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 poor people. And there's no sharing involved. And God hates it. And his salvation has to do with stopping that. And then you've got the prophets who come in and say, you've got people who are starving and dying of sickness and you're not helping them. And God hates it. And he's stopping that. And this nation and this nation and this nation and this nation are all acting all crazy together and God hates it and he's going to stop it. Economics, healthcare, poverty, foreign affairs, foreign policy. This is what the God of the scriptures is concerned with. It's very disworldly. It's very political. And then you've got the New Testament. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom, claiming to be the king. The answer would seem to be, well, yeah, of course these charges are true. If you think through how the, the scriptures present Jesus, present his kingdom. In fact, most of the terms we use to talk about Jesus are political terms. The gospel itself, the word gospel, good news, that's a political term. Christians borrowed that from Caesar. He was using that about himself well before Christians ever started using that about Jesus. When he took reign, when an emperor would take reign, he would send out word of, of the gospel, the good news, that I'm in charge. I'll order the world in peace and justice. Don't worry, there won't be chaos anymore. Things will run smoothly. And Lord, that was about Caesar. That's a Caesar term. That's a, a political term. Son of God. Well, that's what we called Caesar. Caesar was the son of God. It's political terms, peace, the peace of Rome, right? This was their big belief. We brought peace to the world. And the Christians say, Jesus is the prince of peace. On his shoulders will the government stand for forever. So other people say, no, 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 that can't be right. It's not solely spiritual. Look at the Bible. It's very political. God's very concerned with what's happening here and now. And so we've got to take this and we've got to identify the biblical issues and the biblical candidates. We've got to get them into office. We've got to get them into our electoral system and get this thing functioning. I take our nation back for Jesus. They do compete, and we need to make sure that Jesus wins. These are the two pendulums, the two sides, the two options, the two ends of the spectrum. I think both of them are incorrect. I think, again, the way through is to think carefully about what happens. If you really trace through how the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, think about the word king and the word kingdom, and what's happened in Jesus, the kingdom that he's apparently set up, you'll find that the relationship between Caesar and Jesus is not one of substitution. It's not one of where Caesar used to be the highest power among powers, and now that's Jesus. It's that instead, with Jesus' kingdom, it discloses an entirely contradictory notion, concept of what a king is. And what a kingdom looks like. It's not, it's not again, that Jesus is um, competing for Caesar's throne. The more radical claim that Christians would make is Caesar's competing for Jesus' throne. <clears throat> Jesus is the real king, the true Lord of all creation, inaugurated at his resurrection and ascension. And Caesar is simply the parody of the reality that stands in Jesus. So, so think through the difference here. <clears throat> Caesar, everyone knows, 
Caesar and human governments, right, they rule by coercion, violence, power. In fact, the peace of Rome, it was even common during that time, was a peace bought by blood. It was a peace bought by pacifism in terms of we'll kill you all until you're pacified. It was a a brutal, it was vicious. Don't let that, that Discovery Channel shows romanticize the Roman period, right? They would go in, they would crucify hundreds and thousands of people in the city. And you see the cross and you say, who's in charge? Caesar. It's power over, it's legislation, it's coercion. It's ruling by the sword. Jesus, though, comes and he rules. He establishes a kingdom that's completely opposite. It's a kingdom that comes through serving, through loving, through sacrificing, through dying. It's a kingdom that comes from not power over, but we might say power under. It's a kingdom that involves patience. It's a kingdom that involves letting control of power and letting God vindicate, trusting that God will resurrect Trusting that God will fight for you, will be on your side. It's a kingdom where the king is enthroned. He wins his battle by dying on a cross to the human king. I mean, think that through. The answer would be, well, of course Jesus' kingdom is political, but it's a different kind of politics. It's not the exact same kind of politics as Caesar and as human governments. It's a different kind of politics. There's a different content to it altogether. Again, the more radical claim, I think, is not that Jesus wants Caesar's throne, as if Caesar had it and now Jesus wants it. They're competing for it. But instead, Jesus is the true king, has the real kingdom, and Caesar's simply trying to grasp at something that he could never have. Is there tension here? Sure. Tension of the reality and the shadow, the truth and the parody. And it causes riots. They're preaching another king, Jesus. It's an alternative way of thinking about politics, an alternative way of thinking about life. It's not super spiritual. It's not solely focused on the soul. It is concerned with the here and the now. It is concerned with economy and money and poverty and health care and foreign policy, but not in the way that you and I think about it, that we've been trained to think about it by this myth of redemptive violence, that if only the right people get the biggest weapons will make the world the best place it could be. Jesus, God, who, by the way, could have done that, says, I'll bring salvation by dying. You've got to, at some level, think through the idea, Jesus could have set up a government. He could have done that. He could have brought God's reign and rule to earth, as it is on heaven, the Lord's Prayer, through setting up a human government and passing laws. In fact, that was an option explicitly given to him in the Gospels. You remember the temptation scenes. Satan comes to Jesus and says, I will give you all the governments of the earth. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't deny that Satan has that power. I mean, that would be interesting to think about. Jesus seems to assume, yeah, you're in control of all the human governments of the earth. Jesus instead goes, no, that's not how I'm going to do this. That's not the way my kingdom will come. Jesus himself seems to say, God's will doesn't come that way. It comes through politics. It comes through kingdoms. It comes through a king, but a king of sacrifice, of love, of service, of forgiveness. A kingdom that's wholly opposite and alternative to the kingdoms of the world. Yes, it's still a kingdom. It's a different kind of kingdom, though. A kingdom that you've never seen before, but now that you're invited to experience with me. 
I think if Jesus was asked, do you want Caesar's throne? He would respectfully say, no, thank you. I don't need it. And I think if Jesus was asked, would you like to be the president of the United States of America? He would say, no, thank you. Why? I'm already king. I already have a kingdom. And I'm not doing a bad job. Things aren't going opposite the way I want them to go. This is what my kingdom looks like. This is how it comes. I haven't made a mistake somewhere that I need you to fix. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing in the world. The truth of, of, I think, Acts here would not be that Jesus wants to be where Barack Obama is or where Mitt Romney might be. It's that at times when they're not careful, they're trying to be where he already is, where he's already working. I mean, one of the things we have to do with the scriptural imagination is get back to the sense that something real happened 2,000 years ago. Something that changed history, that changed the world. We can't understand the scriptures if we don't get that sense of, of, of something that's been accomplished through the cross and through the resurrection. That Jesus has actually been inaugurated. That's what's happening in Acts 1 when he goes to the Father's right hand. This is his enthronement. This is exactly what he was after the whole time. This was God's plan to set up the king of the Jews over the entire world. And it's happened. Jesus, the human being with a body, with flesh, right now is at the right hand of God, reigning as Lord. And throughout history and just being distracted, we've forgotten this. And we've, we've missed out on the sense of historical realness. And we've pushed all of God's promises into the future. And we miss out on the fact that, that the scriptures say his promises came true on the cross through the resurrection. True, there's more to come. There's completion to become. But the, the battle's been won. The king's enthroned. Jesus was inaugurated. He's already been elected and chosen. This is why I think it might be incorrect to use language like we should choose Jesus as our candidate. Right? Let's write in Jesus on the ballot. One, again, I don't think he's interested. Two, he's already been elected by God. God's resurrected him, brought him to his right hand, the most powerful place in the universe. And on Jesus' first day as, as king of the world, he doesn't enact health care laws. He doesn't cut taxes. He doesn't tighten up the border control. He says, spirit, go be with my people. And that's the best gift a king could give us. And to this day, we should still be praising for that and utilizing that. Beyond anything Barack Obama can do or anything Mitt Romney can do stands the promise of the spirit given by the king of the universe who ascends into heaven and says, I will work through my people and through my spirit. This is what my kingdom looks like. This is how salvation comes. Now, I was walking through this once with some high schoolers and I had an atheist with me. And, and we got to this kind of section. I was trying to emphasize this historical realness that this is actually the victory of God happening in history. It's already taken place. And she, she kind of looks at me, she sits down, she goes, you know what? Logically, that makes sense to me. I see how that all works. Textually, it makes sense to me. It does seem to be what the New Testament is saying here when you really look at it. Historically, this is nonsense. She said, if Jesus became the king 2,000 years ago, he's the worst king I've ever heard of. Or the most evil king I've ever heard of. Look at all the evil things that have happened since he's taken his throne. What's he doing about it? Does he like it? Does he not care about it? Can he not do anything about it? The answer, and I, I try to say this as gently to her as possible, again, is you're thinking about the wrong kind of kingdom. 
that's not how his kingdom comes. You shouldn't be surprised that it takes time and takes suffering and takes working through human beings for Jesus' kingdom to come because this is the same Jesus who refused to take up arms, who refused to fight, who said, I will let evil continue to work until it implodes on itself, until God resurrects me and vindicates me. Again, you've got to think through. Historically, Jesus could have called down legions of angels and zapped that place up. He could have gotten rid of every evil person in the world. But apparently, God doesn't fix things through violence, through power over. Apparently, God fixes things by dying, by serving, by loving, by letting time work its course. So yeah, you you might be confused looking at history thinking, well, where is this kingdom? How is it coming? Why hasn't it come more fully? And then you need to look again at the cross and go, well, well, God's way of operating is much different than our way. We're anxious to get into office and to pass laws and to make people do certain things. That's just not how God operates, whether we like it or not. God works through people. He sends his spirit. He has suffering, death, and then resurrection, vindication. I don't think God would, would be all that interested in, in, in being elected for the American government. I think Jesus again would respond with saying, I'm already doing what I wanted to do. I've got my church. I've got my spirit. We're rocking and rolling. I'm reigning. There's not, there's not a problem in my kingdom. I don't need you to fix my mess. I'm doing exactly what I've done to do. Now, so, so hear me. I've got to be real careful here. Does Jesus care about what happens in American politics? Does he care about the laws that are passed? Does he care about what happens? The answer is Yes. Why? Because he cares about politics. He cares about human life. Politics in the sense of our relationships, right? Politics in the sense of human life in public. He cares about economy. It's all the other scriptures. He cares about money. He cares about poverty. He cares about foreign relationships. Yes, 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 and yes. But does Jesus invest all of his hope for his will to be accomplished in a government? The answer would be no. And neither should you and I. Neither should you and I. I think what American Christians need is to take a breath and to calm down and to realize that Jesus is Lord in a real way, as real as you and I live and exist, if we believe the scriptures. And he doesn't need us to go into the government and start fixing his mess, start cleaning things up for him. He needs us to calm down just a little bit. He needs us to realize that we can't elect the Antichrist or the Savior. I mean, if you, it's kind of interesting how narcissistic Americans are because we really do think, come every election, that we're so important to the world that we're either going to elect the savior of the world or the antichrist. We're either fixing everything or we're blowing it all to kingdom come. <laughs> and I think Jesus would come and say, well, calm down a little bit. The world will continue on. And, and so it's interesting to me thinking through, we invest as Christians all this fervor into political elections, okay? This one coming up on Tuesday. And it's just ridiculous. The world will continue on. Jesus will still reign. I can already see the Facebook post if Barack Obama is elected again on Tuesday night. And it's just wrong. And so I didn't even, again, I'm using some examples. I'm not trying to pick on one group, one side. In 2008, a really conservative, very popular Christian group, very popular, almost everyone in here, I think, would have some kind of literature or books that they published put out. We still listen to them. They're still a very popular group. In 2008, during the election, put out a letter called From 2012. 
And the letter was, it was a fictional letter that someone wrote in 2012 to the people in 2008 describing what would happen if Obama became president. Try to scare young evangelicals into rocking the vote, right? Get out there, make sure it doesn't happen. And I wrote it this week. I didn't even know about it until a few weeks ago. I wrote it this week. It was the most absurd thing I'd ever read in my life. After reading this, I could not believe anyone with a brain would still listen to this group. But we do. I do. It's, a, it's a, not a bad group. They put out a lot of great stuff. This is, again, we've all fallen in the trap. And so the list, I mean, it was this big, long list, very dramatic, right? I mean, we can't just say, I disagree with this person's policies. Bush either has to be this cartoonish, evil terrorist guy, right, who's made this secret pact with the Middle East for oil, because we can't just say, I disagree that you went into Iraq. I think that was a bad decision. And we can't just say, I disagree with Obama and how he views health care and economic decisions. We have to say he was trained as the secret radical Muslim in Kenya for all these years to be a Manchurian candidate, right? And to come and destroy everything. It can't just be a simple policy difference. We have to take everything as high and extreme as we can take it. And so this list starts off, number one, I think, was in 2012, there are no more Boy Scouts because Obama made the Boy Scouts except pedophile leaders who sleep in tents with them. And the Boy Scouts decided just to stop being a group because it wasn't worth it anymore. And that kind of sets the tone for the list as you go down. And involved in the list is by 2010, Christians weren't able to worship in churches anymore. Every church was shut down. We were being persecuted for being Christians. I mean, all these crazy extreme kind of stuff. And so when I hear people talk about how bad the world will be if candidate A gets in or candidate B gets in, I think we do this every time. It's embarrassing. Let's stop. The world will not end with this candidate or this candidate. Now, again, is it important? Yes. Can good things come of an election? Yes. Can bad things come out of an election? Yes. But the world will not be rocked out of the control of Jesus' hands by an election. We don't have that kind of power. We've not been given those keys. And it's a good thing, I think. I would also say this. I think it's harder than we realize to identify biblical issues or biblical candidates. And, and I think the more we intertwine our partisan ideas with Jesus himself, the more confused we get as a church. Here's what I mean. I know people who think biblically, there's a very strong biblical argument, that poverty is the biggest issue for God. Jesus cares more about poverty than anything else in a political kind of arena, right? Again, you've got scripture out the wazoo for this. I mean, the scriptural argument is there for sure. And so they say, above all the other issues, this is the issue, poor issue. I'm going to vote for the person who cares the most about the poor. By the way, if you watch personal debates, it doesn't seem like we care about the poor at all. We care a lot about the middle class, which might be struggling, but it's a neurotic struggling. It's not a struggling to live. We do have people in our country who are struggling to live. People in the world are struggling to live. But that's not what we talk about when we talk about who we're going to elect. We talk about the middle class. Again, I'm kind of middle class. I kind of care about what they're going to do for my situation, right? But that's not maybe the most biblical pressing concern. So people say the person who wants to give the most to the poor, the person who wants to take care of the poor the most, that's going to be the person I vote for. I don't care about any other issues. And if, if someone else could possibly vote for someone else, they must be like the devil, right? They must hate the poor, want to just burn them all alive. But I know people who might be far right, who believe in like trickle-down economics, right? Make the rich people as rich as we can make it, and it'll help everybody out. Who love the poor, 
who are very concerned about the plight of the poor, who think it's very much on God's heart. They just so happen to think this is the best way to do it economically in our world. It's not a difference of ideology. It's a difference of method. They think this will work better. They don't hate the poor. But you can't demonize because someone has a different method than you. And I know people who say abortion is the issue. And if you could possibly vote for someone who is pro-choice, you can't even be a Christian. Jesus is going to disown you on the day that he comes back, right, for voting pro-choice. Again, I would say it's not that black and white. One, I'm not sure you have a candidate who's pro-life who would repeal Roe v. Wade. Two, there are other people who say there are better ways to deal with abortion than trying to appeal to, to, to get rid of Roe v. Wade, trying to overturn that. By the way, abortions happened before we made it legal. By some people's account, more abortions. This, again, doesn't mean abortion's not a wrong thing. doesn't mean abortion is not something we should care about. The more I've grown as a Christian, the more I've come from a position of, of complacency toward abortion, the more and more being like, this is something that needs to be stood up against. This is very much a big pressing issue. But it's a matter of method. People who would vote for a pro-choice candidate don't hate babies. Right? But that's what you might think. Listen to some people. You just want to kill every baby you've ever seen. No. They just have a different way of going about trying to fix the problems that you and I have encountered, have identified. But here's what happens. The more you and I think we've identified the biblical issues and the biblical candidates, the more Jesus gets wrapped up to where you can't separate the two. You can't separate Jesus from your issue. You can't separate Jesus from your candidate, from your side. And so you start doing this, demonizing other people. This is why we need Election Day communion. Because Republican Christians look at Democrat Christians and go, you're everything that's wrong with the world. Why? Because they've glued Jesus together with their opinion. And Democrats do the same thing to Republicans because they've glued it together. And maybe the biggest issue with this gluing together with this convergence of Jesus and an issue or a a candidate, is that it it takes away from the church the ability to be prophetic, to criticize, to challenge. Politics is all about blame and accusation. American politics. You never see a politician or a a, a party get up and say, wow, we were really wrong. (laughs) We killed a lot of people doing that. Apologize. Our bad. We'll take, the, we'll take the fall for that. You know what? This big depression, that was all us. I'm sorry. We won't do that again. You, you don't hear that, right? Christian attitude, Christian language, though, is about repentance, is about forgiveness, is about honesty. The two have a hard time coming together. You have a hard time understanding how Jesus might work in the political arena when, when all you can do is blame and accuse other people. You can never own up to the fact that you might have been wrong and you might have done something wrong wrong so when it comes to again thinking this through it, i don't think it's as easy to identify these candidates when you've made jesus so close with who your candidate is or who your issue is you can never step back and say this is wrong i was with you here and here and here but i can't go any further with you you can't have a prophetic stance and i'll show you this um and here's my proof right uh during the third presidential campaign or the the third presidential can- uh, debate all right the the foreign policy debate You heard this statement by Obama and by Mitt Romney. You heard this statement. America is the hope of the world. By both candidates. America is the hope of the world. We have a biblical term for that statement. You want to know what it is? Idolatry. Blasphemy. 
According to the scriptures, it's one of the worst things you could ever do is verbally put yourself in a place only reserved for God. One of the worst things you should do. But Christians are so wrapped up with Mitt Romney that they're not willing to see that. And Christians are so wrapped up with Barack Obama that they're not willing to see that. And the church as a whole should shudder when we hear that. And when we realize that on Tuesday, one of those two people who said that statement is going to be leading the nation. The church should stand up as a prophet and say... Don't use language like that. Don't think like that. It goes bad for you when you start to think like that. But when you entertain yourself too much, you lose that prophetic ability, that chance to step back and to criticize, that chance to step back and say, well, I can't go with you there. You need to be careful there. You need to tread lightly when you do that. So let me be very clear here. Do I think that you should vote? Do I think that you can vote as a Christian? The answer is yes. I think it matters. I think what happens in the world matters. Do I think that you should get so caught up in it that it divides the church? The answer is no. How dare you? How could you ever let something like that divide the church? How could you ever let something like that take your eyes off of the true Lord of all the universe who's been inaugurated at God's right hand, who's given us his spirit Communion should define us. The church should define us. And so think of this as, in a sense, one long invitation to Tuesday night. Why do we need Tuesday night? Well, because on Tuesday, some of us will vote. Some of us have already voted. On Tuesday, the, the nation will get another president. But on Tuesday, we need to realize a more important fact, a more foundational fact, that we have a Lord. On Tuesday, we need to cast the most important political vote that we can cast for our own lives, for our church's lives, for the life of our community. Is there another king? The answer is yes. Does he compete in this competition for earthly governments? Well, no, not exactly. That's a misunderstanding. He's a true king. He's the real king. When you and I come together to worship him, to pledge our allegiance to him, declare our independence from any other loyalty, any other authority that would, would try to claim our obedience... And so I hope to see you on, on Tuesday. Tuesday evening, 8 o'clock, we'll come and, and we'll, we'll take communion together and, and we'll worship our Lord. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the love that he's shown us. We thank you for the work that he's accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for uh, all the blessings that you have poured out on us uh, among our midst. Uh, we ask, Father, that you would help us to think like the Bereans and think Christianly about even the words we use and about the, the messages that we receive and, and about the things that happen around us, Father. Uh, we pray that we would be so committed to you and so concerned with following you that the world would be turned upside down where we go. Or maybe more correctly, turned right side up. It's been turned upside down, but with the truth, the gospel, and with the peace brought by God's salvation, we find true life and true joy and true meaning, Father. I pray that you would uh, be with the nation. I pray that you would um, be with all the nations in the world, Father. I pray that you would work through your multinational, trans-global church people, Father. That you'd bring them together as one body. And that through your church and through your spirit working in and through them, um, that we would see more and more of your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we love you. We repent of ways that we've gone wrong, both individually and as a corporate body, Father. And we ask that you would send your spirit to be with us powerfully. And it's in your son's perfect and powerful name that all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Amen.